change is inevitable and can often be chaotic. However, when it's fully organized, change can be dynamic, powerful, and progressive. The Organizing for Change podcast will help you move from a spectator to a difference maker and will assist you in bringing positive change to your community, your city, and perhaps of most importance, you. Hosted by Amanda Decker, drug-free community substance use prevention coordinator, mom to many, entrepreneur, and fan of great conversation, Organizing for Change is heard in over 40 countries and every state in the USA. We are delighted that you've joined us today, because after all, we do this for you, and that will never change. Here's Amanda. Welcome to episode 38 of the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to equip coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring change to their community. If you'd like to be an insider to the Organizing for Change podcast, be sure to join our email list. You'll be the first to know about upcoming episodes, and you will get a summary after each episode with links to anything we've talked about emailed right to your inbox. Just click on the link in the notes to join our community today. Today, I want to give a shout out to the Montana Institute. This is one of the best conferences I've attended. It's time to tell a new story about community health one that focuses on community strengths and protective factors, one that's guided by what we want to grow instead of what we want to prevent. Come to the 2020 Montana Summer Institute and discover how to rewrite your prevention story to improve health, increase engagement, and transform community norms. Get ready to rewire the way that you gather data, select your strategies, and connect with those you want to reach. Come to beautiful Big Sky, June 22nd through 25th, and spend your days being challenged and energized by dynamic workshops and presentations, and then take advantage of Montana's endless summer evenings to hike, fish, raft, horseback ride, or visit Yellowstone National Park. Register online at Montana Institute. I'm so excited to bring to you my conversation with Elizabeth Arias, who is a California licensed marriage and family therapist. She is the founder and president of Clearly Clinical, a national podcast-based online behavioral health continuing education program. Known as the Utilization Review Guru, she has specializations in utilization review, clinical best practice, and clinical documentation, and works closely with clinical teams across the country to reduce liability risks and improve their quality of care, documentation practices, and utilization review outcomes. An adjunct graduate professor at Pepperdine University, Beth is an engaging professional conference speaker, and she provides dynamic targeted presentations for conferences, seminars, universities, and mental health providers. She also operates a private practice in Westlake Village, California, where she provides therapy to adolescent young adult clients, members of the LGBTQ population, and those with addictive disorders. 
This episode is a bit different than some of the conversations I've had in the past, but it was amazing to see how much of best work intertwined with the prevention world. I love meeting people who challenge me to see things in a different way and give me ideas for the field I'm in. I hope you will love this conversation too. Without further ado, my conversation with Elizabeth Arias. Well, today we are welcoming Elizabeth Arias to the Organizing for Change podcast. I am so excited to have Elizabeth, and she goes by Beth as well. And we're just going to open up and talk a little bit about how we met. So if you want to launch in and let folks know how we came to be, and then we'll jump into some great questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, first, let me say thank you for having me, Amanda. Um, I'm happy to be here. So you and I first met uh, at a conference in Cape Cod. I am a licensed marriage and family therapist, and I regularly present at different conferences uh, for both addiction and mental health. And at the conference where, where we crossed paths, I was presenting on the topic of utilization review, which um, most people have no idea what that term means. <laughs> and basically, that's the process through which providers um, request authorization for medical or behavioral health services for patients uh, in the insurance world. So, so you happened to attend my presentation on utilization review, and here we are. So, utilization review. In in listening to your presentation, at first I thought, I think I'm in the wrong room. This is terrible. But then, as you started to speak, I realized there are so many great things that you mentioned that cross over into my world as well, particularly around advocating for uh, our our clients or, in my case, our community. So I'd love to dive in and talk a little bit about just some of the ways that you've learned to best advocate uh, for the people that you've served. So just give it to us. What are some yeah. tips and, and tricks? Well, in, so in the utilization review world, it's... Um, it's kind of interesting. I started doing this originally in medical, and I worked for a surgeon. And so when, when someone would come in and say, you know, I, I have this illness, and the doctor says, okay, you know, we're going to do XYZ procedure or whatever treatment, then it was on me as a surgical coordinator to call and get authorization from the insurance company. But because it was medical, it was very concrete. Um, so it's like, here are whatever measurements, um, and then the insurance company says, okay, that falls within these confines, and we authorize or, or deny this um, this treatment, whatever it is. In behavioral health, it's only really been pretty recently that insurance companies, um, most of them now, offer addiction and behavioral health or mental health services and cover them. However, it was originally very limited. So it was only, you know, a couple of sessions here or there. It didn't include, um, at one point, it disallowed treatment for eating disorders. There were times where it disallowed treatment for addiction. Mm. And Due to the Mental Health Parity Act in 2008, we saw a shift where they basically um, they were mandated insurance providers to provide um, mental health care if they were going to offer that benefit. That it had to have the same benefits afforded to medical care. So if you couldn't, if there wasn't a cap on physical therapy, for example, then you couldn't cap mental health therapy. The difficulty was that the industry had never done this before, so it was hard to implement. And um, and there we still struggle just in general with a stigma around mental health. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is difficult to, um, 
to get authorization for therapy, for rehabilitative services, for addiction treatment in a way that doesn't exist in medical, again, because it's not as concrete as medical. Yeah. So we, we're not clinging to, you know, a certain eye pressure, for example, or a certain blood pressure or a, a insulin level or anything like that. These are very interpretive levels that we're looking at outside of eating disorders, which are, which are a little more concrete. Um, but when we're in the world of addiction and mental health, we're looking at functional impairment, which I know was something you and I talked about yeah. um, a few months ago. But so, so one of the things that for us as mental health providers and addiction treatment providers is this focus on, on functional impairment. How mm-hmm. does this issue affect you? And when, um, when we're looking at people who are trying to serve the, the people who are suffering from an addictive disorder, it's not just an evaluation of like, oh, you're using whatever substance so much or, um, or so many times per day or anything like that. It's how that behavior is actually affecting them. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to advocating for themselves or for others with insurance companies, it really does come down to a discussion about functional impairment. Um, and I, the example that I give, I have this picture of this guy, and I think I've done it at the talk that you were that you attended. Mm-hmm. Um, there's this, this picture of this man that's very... Um, very presentable and happy and looks, looks looks like he's at work and my story is I've named that guy Chuck and I don't know why I named Chuck because I'm sorry to all the Chucks in the world but so I think we all know Chuck and he he's, he does well at work and he has a happy marriage and a happy home and he also drinks two bottles of wine every night and by and large he's you know quote unquote a functioning alcoholic and and what I say in my presentation is like but fast forward if that were me if I had two bottles of wine in a night I would be like face down and I would definitely have problem at work and with my marriage and with with my children and I would not be safe to drive and so so it was not the symptom or the behavior which was the consumption of two bottles of wine it's a discussion about functional impairment and that's the piece that I think a lot of providers struggle with how to convey that appropriately to insurance companies and I think even for family members to understand that uh, when we're evaluating whether or not somebody has an addictive disorder it is not necessarily whether or not the person realizes that they do, because we get that that uh, that world of denial. Right. But it's 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 really how is that disorder affecting them? What is that quote unquote a functional impairment that affects them at work, in their personal life, in their significant relationships, in their um, freedom? Because it could have affected their yeah. um, legal status, for example. And I think for me, advocacy number one, I think it's a primary responsibility of providers, but it comes down to to having a clear understanding of functional impairment. I love that, and I think that's so true is really being able to define what it is that you're, you know, talking about. It's not vague and, you know, you have some specifics to go with it. And you talk a little bit, you talked a little bit about, like, the importance of good note-keeping and good note-taking. Um, and I thought that that was really awesome. You you wrote about just um, taking little notes as you go along and not trying to recall everything in the moment. Um, to maybe want to just touch a little bit on that and why that's just such a big part of this. Well, for providers, I think it, and, and actually for family members listening or people experiencing mental health or addiction, it's it's a little weird when we have a clinician that's sitting there in the room, like, taking notes, because, like, what are you mm-hmm. writing? Um, and, and what are you saying about me? Right. But the reason that we're doing it is to illustrate 
medical necessity and that there's a reason that you're in our office or at our facility receiving care and for us as providers none of us went into this field because we enjoy writing notes and if, we, <laughs> if anybody did please contact me I have yet to meet you I don't know who you are um, but so for, for us as providers when we're taking notes they are to illustrate the functional impairment they are to serve as proof of medical necessity and so when patients or family members see a provider taking notes, it's because we are doing so not only because of a legal and ethical mandate, but because it's, it is, it is best practice. It's the way that we actually advocate for people by taking an accurate record of what's going on. And it just, sometimes it just kind of feels funny because we might be talking about really emotional material. Mm -hmm. It's not as simple of, you know, it's not like medicine where it's like, oh, when I twist my shoulder this way, it hurts. Right. We're talking about sometimes really traumatizing and upsetting experiences. Um, and, and so this idea of advocacy working with insurance companies is kind of an uncomfortable domain for a lot of not only professionals, but also families and, and individuals. They don't understand how the system works and, and sometimes why providers are doing what they're doing. Yeah, sure. One of the things that you also talked about, you talked a little bit about when you do make that phone call to the insurance company. Do you want to talk a little bit about just some of the ways that you've learned to navigate when you actually do go make the phone call and you do have to talk about some of these specifics? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so when providers are calling an insurance company and they're requesting authorization for a patient or a client's care, um, again, it comes down to functional impairment and how these symptoms are affecting that person in the mm -hmm. real world mm -hmm. and that we need to be illustrating that medical necessity. And um, it's really interesting because I'll review clinicians' notes regularly, and that's something that we pretty consistently struggle with in the industry. And um, even in the vernacular, so when we make that initial call to an insurance company, it's important for us to, to make this patient, this person real and not be just you know, some yeah. name or some number. This is a real person. And that functional impairment, I think, speaks to it where it's like, look at what this person's um, depressive disorder, how it has affected their life, how it's affected their marriage. They, they recently lost their job because they could get out of bed and go to work. Or if we're talking about a, a substance use disorder, um, that it's, it's a matter of connecting with the person on the other line and helping them understand that this is, this is not, um, this is not a statistic. This is a person. And to make this um, relationship as mutually supportive as we can, because I think, think sometimes providers can feel like they have to put their dukes up with insurance providers. Um, and it, it comes out of the gate being really adversarial. And I don't think it serves any of us. Mm -hmm. um, I, I would like to believe that, as I say, as the saying goes, that we catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. And so when right. I'm talking to providers who are trying to advocate effectively, it's, you know, know your patient, know the situation, know the functional impairment, but also talk about them as a person and help the, help the insurance representative on the other end of the line understand yeah. what the consequences are and why we're asking for this authorization. I think this is so important, too, for in our world, um, our coalition world, oftentimes we will go and present to lawmakers or go present to just policy makers and we will, you know, show them all the numbers and tell them this is what you need to do. But it's really those personal stories that move the human heart 
And I think it's it's so important on our end, too, to make it personal, to take it beyond the number and the statistic and show them that there are people's lives on the other line on at the end of this. And the decisions that our, um, our communities make impact real people instead oh, of just numbers. Yeah, I think that's so important. And one thing that I've seen in an example that I have that I think kind of illuminates this, I was working with a treatment program once and one of the one of the clinicians raised his hand and he said, you know, I had a request from insurance denied um, because they said that this person was a high utilizer and the treatment wasn't working for them. And that the patient had been in and out of different treatment centers and you know, named some number in the teens over a certain number of years. And my response to that was, imagine what would happen if that person walked into the ER and the ER said, well, we've already treated you 17 mm-hmm. times for a heart attack. And it's been, this is too many times. Um, so sorry, um, basically you're a high utilizer. We're not going to service you anymore. And that to me is, is um, illuminating that line. Um, yeah. What the Mental Health Parity Act was about was that we need to be consistent on the medical side and on the mental health side. So we can't say basically, well, you're a lost cause. And that we're talking about a human condition and a human life here. And to right. me, if someone is in and out of rehab, it doesn't speak to how, um, I'm making up a word here, but how unhelpable they are. Yeah. It speaks to how desperately they need treatment, not mm-hmm. the opposite. Um, so for providers listening, it's to, to understand that we are um, we are working within the stigma ourselves mm-hmm. that there that we are automatically working in a space where mental health is not always regarded with as much um, concrete support as mental health. So true. Another thing that you had talked about too is when you did make the call, you didn't just make a call to the insurance provider and talk to anybody. You worked to find people that you could build a relationship with in the insurance companies. And that just really, really impressed me. I, I don't think people usually think of building the relationship with somebody that you're going to be, um, you know, needing to advocate, like you're going to need to advocate, but build a relationship with the people that you're going to pitch, um, you know, you're asked to. Do you want to talk a little bit about that and just some of the, the ways that you did that? It's knowing both who you really want to work with and who you feel comfortable with and understands it, and also knowing who, for whatever reason, and whatever point they are in their career with an insurance company, has has not been able to access their empathy and their appreciation that this is a human that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the relationships that I've really nurtured with insurance providers, it has been through our um, inherent common goal in the industry to help heal people. And if I, as a provider, can't get the authorization that I need, then I'm not going to be able to do that. And if an authorization ends prematurely, then there's a much higher rate that that person, if we're talking about substance use disorder, there's a much higher chance that that person's going to relapse and wind back up in treatment. And so it's like, let's let's work together to do this right and do it right right now um, so that we can work together for a positive outcome for everybody. So that we we can reduce the potential risk of relapse for as much as we can as providers to actually see an adequate length of treatment and to, for me to really invest in trying to get to know these care advocates also so that I don't um, what, so I don't engage with something called um, side sorting, what Brene Brown calls side sorting, mm-hmm. us versus them if, if we're working for the common good of serving this patient, this human that's suffering um, then I'm better able to appreciate their position and not shut down and become adversarial. 
Yeah, and I mean that's true on our end too. So a lot of times when we advocate, we're advocating, like I said, in front of policymakers. And I think one of the things that communities do care about is there's such a limit when it comes to uh, financial resources in so many communities, and they don't necessarily always realize that spending money up front on things like prevention are going to save money on the other end. Never mind saving lives, but it's also going to save your community in the long run. So I think it's so important to find out like what what are some of the goals or what are some of the hopes for whoever you're going to be talking about. And speaking their language, I think, is so powerful. You know, when you just said you're going to be sending this person back into you know, treatment multiple times. And yes, it's also a risk of their life, but it's also a bad decision on the on the insurance company, you know, to not give them the treatment they need because it's going to cost them in the long run, too. So I, th- I think that's so powerful. Thank you, um, and, and that's the you you articulated that exactly. Um, that if if the language, that unfortunately, with the insurance company is about bottom lines, like well, mm-hmm. there is an incentive here, both from a preventative standpoint and from a responsive instead of reaction uh, reactionary standpoint, to be able to service people um, in the here and now and not keep pushing it off and limiting resources that are available to people now when they need them. Yeah. I loved also something that I wrote down that you said. You talked about, and again, pardon me because I'm not in that world uh, so if I call it the wrong thing you can definitely correct me um, but you talked a little bit about like knowing the insurance company's policies really well before you went and spoke to them so I mean at one point you were telling a story about quoting back to the insurance company their own policy and um, I, do you want to tell a little bit about that story and just why it's so important to really know what you're talking about before you jump into um, jump into a call to advocate so there is not a hard and fast definition of medical necessity. Uh, there are different like federal Medicare definitions, for example, and some states have defined it. But be, because there isn't a hard and fast definition of medical necessity, especially in the mental health and addiction space, uh, um, insurance providers have needed to define it themselves. And so they have defined medical necessity and said, this is what we are using. This is our litmus test to determine whether or not somebody needs whatever treatment, whether it's outpatient therapy or detox treatment or whatever it is. And um, that is called a level of care guideline. And every insurance company, per the Mental um, Health Parity Act of 2008, is required to have those available for providers and for lay people, for patients and their families to be able to access. And basically, it is um, this checklist that the, the insurance companies are using to evaluate whether or not the person meets a criteria. Um, and they're, they're sometimes called like initial criteria or continued stay criteria. And every insurance company kind of has their own language. So when I am working with providers that work with insurance and are trying to advocate for an initial authorization with insurance or an extended authorization, say, for residential care, I really advise them to learn these level of care criteria for their primary insurance companies because it is a language. And just like if you're visiting another country, if we have some common ground, we're going to get a lot further. Um, and so sometimes if I'm, if I'm calling an insurance company and I'm speaking a certain dialect, they're going to have more difficulty understanding me. So it's on me then to learn the dialect they speak instead of the other way around because they don't have time. <laughs> so so learn the learn the dialect of the anthem level of care guideline or the single level of care guideline. And I think even for patients, 
um, and my nerdiness is probably showing here, but I think even for patients, it's kind of helpful to know, know that those things even exist. Yeah. Where it's like, why is the insurance company denying this? Or why why are they reviewing my child's um, stay in partial hospitalization every three days? Why do I keep answering these phone calls from a utilization review person? What is that? And these things are available online, or you can call your insurance provider and request them. So across the board, I think a lot of people don't know they exist, and they're there for a reason. They're not always right. They're not always up to date, and there are plenty of legal battles being fought about those very issues, but for what we have right now, mm -hmm. the level of care guidelines are important to, to know for providers and for patients alike. When you think about a big aha moment um, just in this work, is there a particular story or a situation that comes to mind where you were like, wow, this just, I really discovered something that just not a lot of folks know? Well, actually, in the first time I was learning about a level of care guidelines, I had actually been doing it for a while. I started doing utilization review of behavioral health um, because somebody had gone out on leave. And the management said, hey, you have good progress. And I was like, come, come and do this. And I'm like, okay. So it was definitely trial by fire. And and I remember my very first call. And I'm like, um, excuse me. You know? <laughs> and thank God I had already done utilization review for medical. So I wasn't totally unaware of the process, but it's very different. And it was a few months in where it was actually a billing professional friend now that was like, do you know about these? And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> um, so that was a real game changer. And then also understanding that there are many states have laws that uh, specifically define medical necessity. Um, and, and that your state's definition may actually be weightier than the insurance company definition, and they may even be in opposition, but the state law would win. Um, so there are many agencies that are there to protect patients uh, from insurance companies not authorizing care that should be authorized. Mm -hmm. These kind of watchdog agencies in California where I am, we have the Department of Managed Healthcare is one of them. We have a couple out here. But so there are there are laws out there and patients and again providers alike would be benefited by knowing if their their state has a specific law pertaining to medical necessity and what these watchdog agencies have to say. Because if a care if a case is denied um, and we as providers are like, oh my gosh, no, this is dangerous and this person needs care, we can appeal that and we would be going through one of those watchdogs. So yeah. the, the, the learning of these different things and the level of care guidelines and these legal definitions of medical necessity for me was a game changer because prior to that, I felt like the, the, the cards were always stacked against me. And then I realized like, no, I just didn't have, I wasn't playing the full deck. Yeah. That's really interesting. So when you appeal a case in my brain, I'm thinking appealing, I, I forget what the famous movie flick out there is with the insurance battle. But um, when I think of just appealing against an insurance agency, do people actually win, win that? Yeah. Wow. So, so there are multiple levels of internal appeals with insurance companies and they're required to happen. Um, so you have like an initial uh, appeal and then a secondary appeal. And Quite frankly, those are very often denied because the insurance company, you know, the subsequent doctor is saying, well, Dr. A says that, no, this person doesn't need care, and I'm Dr. B, so I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to stick with Dr. A. I'm not going to overturn your, your uh, denial. However, um, most states, all states at one way or another, have one of these watchdog agencies that is run by the state that is designed to protect patients. Hmm. So, so we call that an external appeal versus an internal appeal. So let's pretend we go through this process with the insurance company internally. Then our next step is to go through it externally 
with um, one of these watchdog agencies, and basically it is a records review, so that goes back to why it's so important to keep good notes <laughs> and establish medical necessity and functional impairment. And so basically you turn over, you have consent from the patient and family, assuming they're okay with you releasing this information, and if they've consented to that and signed for it, then you, you compile this appeal and you say, this is why we think it was necessary for this person to have an additional two weeks in residential care or an additional 23 sessions of therapy or whatever it is. And then it's a third party that's neutral that evaluates whether or not there was medical necessity. And that's just based on the record. It's not based on interviews, at least in California, it's just based on the record and in other states that I've worked with. So again, it goes back to the importance of clearly illustrating medical necessity. And um, in California, at least last I checked, the rate that denials were overturned, and this is across medical and behavioral health, so it's not just mental health care. Okay. But the rate of overturn as a part of managed health care is, I think, between 55 and 60%. 55 so and more, 60%. Yeah. Wow. So more are overturned wow. than are accepted. And, that's, and then the state comes in and says, says uh-huh, <laughs> that person met medical necessity, you need to pay for that. Um, and it's, it's, it is pretty incredible uh, when the system does what it's supposed to do and you can effectively advocate because the cost of mental health treatment and medical care is just exorbitant. Yeah. So you have these families that are literally selling their homes to be able to try to keep an addicted family member alive. Mm. Um, and that is a horrible, horrible thing, especially yeah. when there's an insurance policy there and there's medical necessity. So thank goodness for these agencies. And the people that, you know, are willing to keep going yes. back and say, hey, you have to do this. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's awesome. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit. Um, you also have your own company, and uh, you do something really neat on it uh, with podcasting. So do you want to just talk a little bit about that and just some of the unique ways that you're helping educate um, the world out there? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I founded uh, and run a company called Clearly Clinical, and we are a podcast-based continuing education company. Um, we are approved by a number of dif different uh, national continuing ed approval bodies, like uh, the American Psych Psychological Association and the National Board for Clinical Counselors and, and a number of other acronyms. And we offer free podcasts that are continuing education-based for clinicians across the world, ranging from topics like we're talking about today like medical necessity utilization review to HIPAA, for example, or methods like dialectical behavior therapy or EMDR. And the vision here was to offer resources to people that um, that otherwise they may not have access to. Um, when I was what I call a baby clinician, when I needed continuing education, I, I did the cheapest option out there, and I don't think I learned very much, and there's something kind of fundamentally wrong with that. Yeah. So this company I started put together a board as an answer to that problem. We have a number of, of free continuing ed courses, so people can get free continuing ed credits. I'm really excited because we're actually releasing – we're releasing one in the next couple of weeks with Dr. Scott Miller, um, who has done incredible research about the effectiveness of therapy. And we also are releasing one probably in March or April featuring Dr. Julie Gottman, who's one of the most influential uh, couples therapists in the world. So, and that's a totally free continuing ed uh, credit course. So the vision here was to offer a resource to clinicians. It was either free or very low cost. And we also work a lot with female and minority presenters and also donate to the Trevor Project for LGBT suicide prevention. So um, so a lot of the information actually that I've talked about today with you is available on that podcast, which is called Light Up the Couch. And our company, again, is called Clearly Clinical. 
That's awesome. I One thing I want to say, too, along those lines is I listened to some of your work, and again, I'm not in this field, and I thought it was fascinating. You did a really good job um, because I have been in many trainings that are just so boring, <laughs> and I, I think you did a really great job at making the content interesting, even for somebody who's not in that um, specific uh, field. Well, thank you. I am... Um Let's just say the clinical documentation utilization review are not the sexy side of therapy. Um, so, so I have to do what I can to light it up, or else I would hear a lot of suds in the back when people falls. Yes. I, I like, too, that you've also done some um, great writing, too. So for listeners out there, um, I loved your website, and I read a lot of your blogs. I even sent it to a few of my friends who are therapists, and they thought your article on uh, taking notes was fantastic. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, there, there are some few resources there. There's an acronym that I created called Safety First. They can help clinicians um, organize their clinical information so that they can better document medical necessity uh, because the fact of the matter was um, if I didn't know a lot of this stuff even coming from utilization reviews that there was no way that my peers knew it so for me if it helps clinicians be better and advocate that I am all for it and I, I will not charge for that information I want it to be available to people for free <laughs> yeah this conversation has flown by um, is there anything that we missed that you thought might be important for folks to know you know, one thing that I just want to bring up, one of the things that I've seen happen with insurance companies, particularly for families, sometimes they'll get calls from insurance for companies, um, quote-unquote care advocates or case managers, and families don't always know how to talk to them. And my advice would be, if, if you are a family member who has somebody in treatment, it's it may be best for you just to refer back to the treatment team. So to say, you know, thank you so much for calling and checking up on my daughter. I really recommend you talk to her treating therapist because I've been in situations before where um, families may unknowingly say something that kind of might shoot a hole in the medical necessity um, that the clinicians know is there. And so it's not, you know, I'm not saying don't talk to the insurance company, like definitely let's mm -hmm. work together. And I want families to feel empowered if they feel uncomfortable having a conversation um, or they're not sure, like always default to your treatment team and reach out to your, your child or your loved one's therapist and say, hey, I got this phone call. Can you call this person back and answer some questions um, because I think for families it can be kind of confusing because they don't they don't know who to talk to and yeah. they, they don't understand the process and the clinician and the treatment team should understand that process and can accurately convey and, and help the family feel sometimes insulated from the exchange of money which is really what insurance is about yeah. Um, so, so, so I just want to say for the family members out there, don't be afraid to say to an insurance company, it's calling you, thank you so much for calling um, and answering their questions if you feel comfortable, but don't be afraid to say, hey, here, you know, here's the therapist's phone number. I think you have a release. Please reach out to that person. That's um, because it may be, it may be a better choice to help everybody work together and be on yeah. the same page. That's great information. Um, so I know people are going to be curious and they're going to want to know where to find you. So where's the best place uh, to look for you? Would that be your website? Yes. Yeah. Um, our website is clearlyclinical.com. And uh, I can be reached at Elizabeth at clearlyclinical.com. And that's Elizabeth. I love hearing from people. I love connecting folks with resources. So please reach out to me. And we definitely will include those in the show notes. So if you're driving... You know, you don't have to remember. <laughs> we'll put it in the show notes for you. Well, this conversation has been fantastic. I so appreciate your work and your time and just wish you the best of luck. Thank you for what you're doing to contribute just 
to advocating on the behalf of so many families and individuals that just really need care. And I, I know that they are really being blessed by your work. Well, thank you. And thank you for resources like you that on a grassroots level, level are um, working on the prevention side as well. Um, of, of what we, we can do to tackle this beast. And we need to all work together. Insurance companies, providers, families, we got to do it together. So thank That's you for great. being part of that. Awesome. Thank you and have a great night. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Organizing for Change podcast, where our goal is to empower coalitions, organizations, and individuals to bring positive change to their communities. To learn more about us or to get the show notes from today's episode emailed to your inbox, log on to our website. We hope you are inspired by today's show and keep up the great work. See you next time.